Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Kalfa. Let's talk about some wolves. It is truly an honor and a privilege to have this individual with us on the podcast today from his residence in Boise, Idaho. When he retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 2006, he was the Wolf Recovery Coordinator for the state of Idaho. He has also authored two books, which I highly recommend, Wolfer and Wolf Land. They can be purchased at any book retail outlet, Amazon. Mr. Carter Niemeyer. Carter, it is a pleasure to have you with us. How are things going in Boise, Idaho? And once again, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me today. Uh, we're doing well here compared to other parts of the United States. We got about a foot of snow, but uh, the weather's mild uh, in contrast to <laughs> the Texans and everybody right now. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of a switch around. It seems uh, we're we're having. I think today we're a little little, little windy in California, but. We're still in the 50s and not as much snow and rain as we probably hoped in February, but we're hoping you know we get a little bit of an El Nino eventually. Um, but yeah, things are going well. I could tell as soon as you, uh, I could tell as soon as you walked in that you that it was windy up at the ranch because I could see wind burn on your face. I was like, I'm familiar with that with that look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure, Carter, you've dealt with that. You've You've gone for you went from you grew up in Iowa and then you moved out west. I'm sure you experienced a lot of that when you moved uh, out into Montana and then now where you are in Idaho, I imagine, right? Yeah, Boise is a very mild uh, location. We're right on the edge of the you know Snake River Plain and the desert. Uh, but growing up in Iowa and spending 26 years in Montana, I, I can tell you what cold weather is <laughs> and uh, very accustomed to it. So. In my older years, it's a reprieve to live in a place like Boise right now. Beautiful. I can imagine. Um, I want to, I really want to jump into this. Um, I, I was telling you right before we started, I, I finished your book, Wolf, for last night. It really was just a beautiful encapsulation of your life. And I, I really felt as though I, I was there with you and I, was along this amazing journey that you've had. So, like you said, growing up in Iowa and then moving through Montana and now where you are in Idaho, bring people to where you were when you were growing up in Iowa and how you eventually got started into wanting to be a biologist and going to, to school and getting your degrees and, and how that all came together. Well, Growing up in Iowa, in uh, I was born in 1947, so by the time I was about 10 years old in Iowa, uh, late 50s, early 60s, it was a really great place to grow up. Uh, as a boy, uh, you know, I think every kid had a BB gun, and we could, uh, I walked out of our house, and we were on the east edge of my hometown, uh, corn, soybean fields, but still a, a a lot of native prairie along the railroad tracks and uh, didn't have all the herbicides, pesticides we have today. So uh, things were pretty wild in Iowa growing up in the late 50s, early 60s. We, one of the highest uh, states for, you know, non-native ringneck pheasants, they killed, I think, in the millions of them, you know, during those time periods. So just being a kid outdoors, uh, it was limitless. You could just go forever and out in the countryside. Uh, lots of small game animals, 
Um, and that's how I kind of became a naturalist very young. you just exposed to, uh, you know, everything from insects to birds to, to animals of various sizes and shapes. And uh, a BB gun, you know, it, it, a lot of people would find that deplorable today, but it's how you got up close. Uh, if you shot a bird, you shot a mouse, something uh, you had it to pick up, hold in your hand. And, and uh, that's how I learned uh, a lot about nature. And uh, decided by the time I was a senior in high school that uh, I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. It just seemed like the natural occupation. So, Carter, you like you said, you, you grew up in Iowa. There was, um, you know, like you said, you had a BB gun. You know, growing, growing up in the Midwest, what, what really turned you on to, I know you were talking about being a naturalist early on in your life and, and reading through you school school didn't seem to be really something you were into, and yet you got two degrees. How how were you able to balance your love for the outdoors or wanting to be out in nature all the time, and being able to focus to get you know to do enough schooling and to get through the schooling that you needed to to become a biologist? Well, I think it's life experiences. My uh, my parents were older, you know, they were like 35 when I was born. And so uh, my older brother, he was gone from home by that time. You know, his schooling was a little advanced ahead of me. So I, I was a kid allowed to roam about. And uh, I brought home, you know, caterpillar worms, put them in my mother's porch windows and hatched out butterflies and um, had jars of insects sitting around and my dad even built pens for me, you know, to put insects in. And uh, I raised pigeons We in my grandmother's cross street. We had, uh, you know, ducks and geese. And so it was a natural world for me to be exposed constantly to wildlife and domestic uh, livestock. And um, then, you know, you got the school teacher, um, I, I had a biology teacher in school who nurtured me. You know, you'd bring stuff to school and where your other teachers wouldn't really pay attention. Uh, you were kind of a hero to bring a, you know, a bug or something to school. And the biology teacher would uh, acknowledge that and display it and kind of give you credit for, hey, kids, look what Carter brought to school. And uh, so that was really an important aspect of, uh, you know, continuing my interest. And by the time I got to the point of going to college, I was sick of school for all the other reasons. You know, I just didn't like sitting in a school room and wasn't real strong academically, just an average guy. But um, I went through, I went to junior college. That was very boring to me because it was just more math, more English. And, um, it wasn't until I went on to Iowa State, which uh, kind of scared me to go to the big university because I thought more of the same. But when I enrolled at Iowa State University, I had gotten all my English and chemistry and math and, and what I considered, you know, kind of the boring subjects out of the way. So at Iowa State, you know, you got to take mammalogy, the study of animals, ornithology, the study of birds, uh, entomology, the study of insects, and do that for two more solid years. But you were actually learning about all the things that really interested you. 
so the effect on me was I couldn't really get enough of it. And it uh, absorbed my interest, improved me academically. And then uh, the crazy thing was uh, when I got my bachelor's degree in wildlife biology from Iowa State, I, I couldn't get out of there quick enough. And then uh, professors asked me, Carter, would you like to go to graduate school? Because we're looking for a student who knows how to hunt and knows how to trap and knows how to catch animals. You have all those skills and we want to do a study of rabies in North Iowa mammals and it's going to require a bunch of live trapping and catching animals and ear tagging them and taking blood samples. And so here's graduate school offered to me on a, on a silver platter where nowadays, you know, a student really has to work hard to just get a university interested in you. Um, I kind of wavered for a while on that and then got encouragement again from a lot of my mentors and, and wildlife biologists and my brother. And they said, man, you're crazy if you don't do this. So I went to graduate school and wow, my grades jumped up almost to a 4.0, which was unheard of in my academic history. <laughs> but again, it was interesting. Uh, you're, you're getting more and more focused on what could become your occupation. So I'll, you put that all together and, and uh, my academic experience only improved as I went to school longer. I can only imagine how many people you know, being introduced to professions in the outdoors that you've been an inspiration to. Um, as a young man getting started, who were some of your mentors? You know, you mentioned mentors, but who were some of your mentors or inspirations at the time? Any figures that you looked up to or authors that you admired maybe? Well, when one of the uh, outcomes of enrolling at Iowa State was, uh, you know, when we had orientation day, they set you all down, hundreds of students enrolled in wildlife and uh, held up a little book called the Sand County Almanac. My favorite. Yes. And, and they said, this is required reading. I mean, the first day of school, they hold that book up, said, go to the bookstore, <laughs> read this, because this is what, you know, this is Aldo Leopold's message to everyone. And you should know this stuff. I still have it on my bookshelf and I still go back to it over and over and over. Love it. Uh, it's authors like that that inspired you and, and kind of opened yeah. up the kind of world you were going to live in someday. And then uh, other mentors were the wildlife biologists like uh, Richard Bishop. Uh, he was the waterfowl biologist for the state of Iowa, 12 miles away from my hometown. And Ron Andrews was the fur bear biologist. And uh, Dick Nomson was the pheasant biologist, upland game. And those guys hired me right out of high school to do summer work. And when I was hesitating about going to college, they just told me, they said, hey, uh, you don't go to school, we're not going to employ you because we don't want you unless you're, you get your training. And, and I, my brother, he was a teacher and uh, told me the same thing. He says, gosh, especially going to graduate school. My brother wanted to do that, never did. Um, so all of that encouragement kept me going. And uh, I, I would tell any student today, uh, don't hesitate to get your education, especially when you're young and right out of high school, because there's a lot of distractions that would 
tend to pull you away and, and you're probably not going to come back. But there's something so endearing about that book. I don't know what it, I don't know exactly what it is, but his, the drawings in there too, they just, um, I don't know. They're so nuanced and macro. It's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece of art. Well, every person, no matter whether you're in wildlife, uh, uh, oriented occupations or just a citizen in this country, there's so much in it and, and just make you aware of, I, I just wish everybody in this country be more aware because, uh, the outdoors, uh, the natural resources in this country, it's the greatest treasure the United States has above everything else. And it's rapidly diminishing and it's rapidly being exploited. Uh, we have this huge population of humanity demanding more and more from the land. And uh, it's just a treasure that we better focus on and and protect it and maintain it. It's probably more valuable today than it was back then because there's less of it. Yeah, I agree. And our, our freedom at the, you know, the concept of freedom as Americans is so, I think people forget how tied that, how tied into our access to wilderness and public land that is. So. Yeah. The public lands, uh, I could spend hours preaching about protecting the public land because there's a living out west, there's a real movement by states to want to acquire those public lands <laughs> and have the federal government transfer them into state ownership. And I can assure you, I mean, just humans have that uh, history that once you have it, you're going to exploit it and then you're going to sell it off for more income, for a quick fix. Uh, the money's gone. The federal land is gone, and then what do we have? Nothing. So we got we don't have enough public land. Let's have more. Actually, <laughs> I yeah, I love that because you, you are not the first individual we've interviewed that has said those pretty much those same exact words. And and Stephen's right. And what I I love from reading reading your book also is you you've had this passion and this drive about the outdoors since you were young even when you were trapping as a as a child and now as you say as you get through graduate school you just have this beautiful way of i feel like you're such a bridge person to sort of the the government side of it and also the ranching side of it and i mean we'll get more into that but you just seem to really toe the line right in the middle of trying to get people to see both ends of the spectrum was it how did you get that from, and I saw it even when you were a teenager moving through your university years, is that you really had that demeanor. Was that something you grew up with? Did you come into that? How did you, how were you able to formulate your thoughts and be so, I don't know, I want to say like come together. I don't know what word I'm trying to find. You know what I mean? You were able to play both, not play both sides, but you're able to bring both sides together. Well, I guess I got to give my dad credit for that. My dad uh, was a uh, fire chief of my hometown, you know, pretty much every day I knew him. He was the fire chief. He was the president of church consistory. He was in the Lions Club, uh, you know, community man. So uh, I saw him take care of the community and, and be one of the pillars of society. 
But then again, uh, peripheral to, to my hometown, it was farmland. It was rural community. So all my jobs from the time I was 12 years old, I was baling hay and, and pitching animal poop out of windows at the farms. And um, so I worked on those farms and grew all the kids on the farms were my classmates in school. So I quickly grew up appreciating agriculture and, and the production that it contributed, you know, to the country. Uh, so I was comfortable with rural people and farmers. I, and I worked, uh, you know, menial tasks, but I understood what they were about. So um, when I got out of school and, and uh, was moving out into a bigger society and, and into my occupation, uh, a lot of my work was an interface with rural communities, uh, whether they're farmers in the Midwest or moving out west uh, where people, you know, everything's called ranching here more or less. But uh, I had that ability to communicate, which helped me bridge uh, a lot of the wildlife issues uh, and be able to talk with urban people on the one side and, and communicate with the rural folks on the other. Yeah, describe some of that when you, because you really were were tossed right into this and it wasn't wolves right away. It was, I know in the 70s and the 80s, it was, there was a lot of coyote work that you were doing, some bear work. Some of the stories that you have in there are incredibly fascinating, how you're working with the ranching community and, and trying to relocate these predators away from their livestock. So how was that as a young man I, I, in your mid-20s sort of being thrust into this world out West that you didn't really know at that point because you were you grew up in Iowa and now you're out in Montana in this wide open space. Well, I, I, I'll reflect back on Iowa. I, I think in Iowa, I learned the fundamentals. You know, there I trapped muskrats and, and caught raccoons and hunted foxes. And so you fundamentally learned skills on a much lower, smaller scale so by the time I got out west, I had the skills to capture animals, depending which species you're after. But uh, I had a huge learning curve out west, but it was a uh, the attraction of, hey, Carter, we got a grizzly bear problem. And it's like, whoa, you know, grizzly bear. Not a muskrat. Or, uh, you know, so suddenly the, the carnivores and the predators are bigger in size. Uh, but fundamentally, you have to understand the critter. And, and once you know that fundamental behavior and know the general uh, procedures to catch something, you just had to use bigger equipment, stronger equipment. Uh, but it was pretty much the same. So uh, it um, it was a challenge, but obviously I think any any male that I've ever talked to says, wow, Carter, if only I could have got to do what you got to do. So uh, how could you not be uh, anything but in the game always and, and never bored? And then having that interest to drive you, uh, uh, it only... I think it only lead to success and making you want to do the best job you could. 
So we've heard it from a few biologists, uh, you know, going the switch from a smaller species to these massive like megafauna or, or apex predators. And I've never heard it quite articulated, but what do you, what, what do you think it makes it so much more exciting? Uh, like, why is it such a huge jump from a small animal to like a grizzly, for example, like trapping muskrats to trapping grizzlies? What, what, what's, what's your sense of the emotion of that, of that change? Well, first of all, you know, you know, you know what you know about grizzlies from reading about them and, and seeing the, the stories. Uh, some are true, some aren't, a lot of anecdotal stuff. But, uh, you know, getting that first call and, and there's a bunch of domestic sheep that have been killed and look like they'd swallowed a hand grenade. You know, they were <laughs> uh, bitten up, mauled, uh, pulled apart and consumed wow. and First thing is, whoa, this had to be a powerful animal to do this kind of damage and eat that amount of meat. And uh, so, yeah, it's kind of like the abominable snowman is out there, this monstrous creature uh, with so much power. Uh, And then it's when you're setting the hardware, you know, the foot snares and, and baiting in this bear that's out there somewhere you don't know where and making sure that all the bolts are tightened and the cables are strong and there's no weak link in any of the connections because this animal once you catch him with a foot snare he's not going to be a happy camper he's going to be very upset and he could certainly hurt you really bad uh so it, it's just this excitement of going after this gigantic animal and then uh, drive up in your truck in the morning to, you know, check the snares. And you hear up in the woods where your snare is set, you hear this like a angry Hereford bull bellowing and you hear tree branches cracking and trees falling over and uh, like, holy moly. So again, then you got your dart gun with your little chemicals and, and uh, immobilizing drugs, and that's the only thing that's going to render him helpless so that you control the situation. And so you hike up the trail, and, and uh, you know, the first time always, uh, you're usually with another veteran trapper who has done this, so he knows more than you do, but it's unnerving. And you're bringing your rifles and your shotguns and uh, and hoping nothing goes bad and everything goes well. And then again, you see the first time you see a three or four hundred pound grizzly bear confined to a, a snare on his foot, and they come lunging at you and and uh, are very upset and angry and would kill you in a heartbeat if that cable broke. And you just feel that vulnerability. And finally, you know, you, you, you put the chemicals in the, in the bear and suddenly he's licking his chops and his eyes are blinking and he's laying there and you poke him and realize, you know, we can touch this monster. Wow. And the whole time too, I mean, it's just this magnificent animal. That's what I always think about is, wow, to just be close to something this big and this powerful um, and then, you know, subduing all that power, putting it in a bear culvert, uh, so, you know, and there's, there's all the 
drama with this too. A lot of times we would have to have a helicopter come in and, and with a cable and sling the bear out in a big net and fly him down, you know, into a meadow where you could work because everything else was forest and timber. And, um, it's kind of an adrenaline rush in its own way. And pretty soon, you know, you kind of look forward to, wow, I wonder when the next grizzly bear is going to come along. And of course, but in the same time, always, at least in, from my viewpoint, um, uh, we, I never killed a grizzly in my life, nor do I ever want to, but being able to subdue this animal, take it out of a problem situation where it's killing someone's domestic sheep on private or public land. And uh, we were able during my career to transport these bears to mountain ranges over into a different drainage where there weren't livestock and release it into the wild and know that this bear has another chance to uh, to live and, and, you know, a second chance without having to be behind bars or be euthanized. So uh, gave you a real sense of satisfaction too. Can you, can you describe when you came across, and this is, again, I'm going to keep referencing what, what I read. Go through when you get that call about, a supposed predation, whether it was cattle, sheep, whatever it was, and then we, you get to the scene. What are what are the things that you are looking for to determine what's the out what what's the actual cause of the you know the the livestock to have died or perished, whatever it may be? Because you go through all these wonderful wonderful stories and wonderful accounts of your techniques. So what were some of the things that you did in order to either show that it was an actual predator, which it could have been a bear, a golden eagle, which I have more respect now for golden eagles than I ever did, you know, because of what they could do. So what what were some of the things you went through to determine the outcome of how an animal was actually uh, killed or actually died? Well, first of all, I got to back up and say that when, when you get a phone call, there's a lot of emotion involved. Uh, people have lost an animal of some sort, a sheep, a cow, a horse, whatever the animal may be. But um, the lesson, first of all, I want to remind people, always keep an open mind. Um, often it is not what it appears to be. So I learned that early on in my career is when you get that call and, and there's this assumption that, you know, a bear did it, an eagle did it, whatever did it. Um, you get in your truck and you go to the location, meet the people, let people describe, you know, talk to you, express their feelings. You, you evaluate how people are at the time too. I mean, are they angry or are they puzzled? Um, so you kind of get control of the people situation and get everybody to kind of calm down. And, and then when you hear what people think the situation is, then you go to the location and uh, there's the dead sheep or cow or calf, whatever. Um, first thing I always did was try to not just go to the dead animal carcass first, check out the road, check out the trails, um, anywhere that something, you know, is it mud, is it silt? 
anywhere that an animal can leave a track, look for footprints. What kind of animals have been there? Uh, often when I get that first phone call too, you tell people, keep your livestock dogs in your truck, tell the neighbors to stay home, or at least keep everyone away from the dead animal. Uh, so you look for tracks and you look for animal poop of different sizes and shapes and try and get a picture of the country. Uh, what kind of animals could we even be talking about? I mean, is this bear country or, or not bear country? And uh, you look at the evidence from small animal tracks to large tracks. Was it a bear, a mountain lion or whatever walked down the road? And once you get all of those um, bits of information, you know, it's, it's like a crime scene, actually. It's just no different than a police officer securing a crime scene. You're looking for evidence, trying to mark it, take pictures of it, take video, and then eventually you get to the dead animal. And normally if one, if a predator kills a prey animal, there's blood, there's trauma, there's bruising, uh, if the animal was alive and was killed, it had blood pressure during that time until its heart quit beating. And so when a, the animal is traumatized, if a bear is chewing up a sheep, it's going to bleed severely. Uh, it's going to have a lot of bruising in the skin and in the flesh where, where it was attacked. That's what I look for. Is it, Was this a predation event? On the other hand, if an animal died from pneumonia or some other disease issue or had a heart attack or there's lots of things that kill animals. Um, once that heart stopped beating and a predator or say like a grizzly bear, you know, they're a carnivore, they are a predator, but they're also a scavenger. But if they come and eat on that flesh and there's no hemorrhage where the feeding has happened, then you know that animal was already dead. So the, there, it, there's a skill level there that you got to know what you're looking for and you got to be very observant. Uh, and then in the end, if, if you see this trauma, bruising, uh, an attack scene, then all right, that's where my expertise comes in. Uh, if your animal just died, you need to get a hold of your veterinarian and have him come out as a doctor and tell you, hey, I think this <laughs> happened to your critter. But if he's tore apart, that's my job then to assess who did it, where'd he come from. And again, when you take the next step of having to capture and remove, whether you relocate it or you catch captured and euthanize, kill the animal or the predator. Um, that's a decision you make at the time. And uh, anyway, I guess I've belabored it enough. <laughs> Did you find that the receptivity of the person uh, or the, the entity that lost the animal, that the reaction was different depending on what animal you determined was the culprit? The most difficult animal I've ever had to deal with in my life is our humans because they come in all shapes and sizes and they come <laughs> with all kinds of attitudes and behaviors. So uh, yeah, yeah, there's a skill set right there is evaluating what kind of person are you dealing with? Are they reasonable or unreasonable? Um, 
So I've had people who absolutely say, you know, Carter, you're the professional. I'll go with whatever you tell me. And I've had others call me a lying blankety blank blank. <laughs> you're just a bear lover, a wolf lover, a predator lover, and you would never admit that one of those animals or birds you love so much would ever ruffle a hair on one of my livestock. Of course. So um, you just never know what you're getting into. And I have been called, like I tell people, you can call me anything you want, but don't call me late for dinner. <laughs> I love that. I, that's what I'm saying. I, I, I was so amazed with your candor and being able to deal with these situations so even keeled, I think I could count maybe once or twice in the entire book where there was either an emotion, you know, either it was anger or something else that you you wrote about that really stuck out to you. Because most of the time you were just presenting facts and you were going through your job. And it's, I think it takes a special type of individual to be able to really do their job to the degree that you you did all those years and like Steve, you know Stephen said you're you're dealing with different personalities and trying to you know handle the situation the best you can because as you say these these people are are losing a piece of their farm losing a piece of of their family really because they some of them have raised these animals from 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 calves from from young animals. And so there is an emotional part of that that you have to play off of. Yeah. And then, you know, like jumping into to wolves a little bit too, you have to, I mean, all part of your training and, and your skill set you get as you get older is understanding where people are coming from because there's an awful lot of resentment toward county, state, and federal government, probably federal government the most. Uh, people, just, again, talking about the wolf specifically being a reintroduced native species, uh, it upset and angered a lot of people, you know, and, and it's mostly political more than anything. So you got to realize, too, that this animosity comes from people for a whole number of reasons. Um, some people have nothing against a grizzly bear or a wolf other than, you know, I think it killed my livestock. And then when you determine, yes, it did, and they can say, well, okay, I just wanted you to confirm or verify it because sometimes there's compensation, uh, ways to, you know, give them some monetary replacement for what they lose. But then there's others who take it out on me, for instance, because I represent the federal government. Uh, you dumped these wolves on us. Yeah. You make us have to live with these things. We don't want them. They don't belong here. And unless you're willing to catch that animal and take it away for whatever reason, right or wrong, um, you catch the blame. You catch hell just because you're the messenger representing a government that they feel is you know, stepping on their toes, forcing them to have to live a certain way. And so I understand that. And when you're standing on someone's private property, 
you know, I'm, I'm pretty submissive, pretty sympathetic because, yeah, this is your private place. Uh, my wife and I own chickens. So if a raccoon comes in my yard and kills my chickens, uh, I can do whatever I want to it. Mm-hmm. The big problem <laughs> where you get caught up in the middle of all this, too, is like state of Idaho, almost 70% of the state of Idaho is public land. It belongs to you and me and everybody in Seattle and Portland. Uh, and your sympathy level drops a little bit because you're on that public land. It's a privilege. It's not your right. It's a privilege that you're enjoying that you have a lease and that you can raise your livestock here. But back off a little bit, this is grizzly bear country. This is wolf country. This is coyote country. And uh, it's a little bit different. So uh, in my career, I'm sympathetic a lot more so to people on their private land than I am when they're on federal land. Because I I think the rules should be different. But in actuality, the rules are very much the same. Yeah. So when you're navigating that, when you... as we get into wolves, when there were, again, cases where people thought that they were seeing wolves start to trickle back down into Montana, a little bit from Canada, what were the, I guess, what was your approach when obviously you weren't reintroducing just yet, but things were starting to move, I guess, in that direction? How are you dealing with the backlash or because you're getting it, I'm sure from both sides, as I was reading, you have the pro wolf side, you have the, the non wolf side that wants, you know, anything that's, uh, you know, a threat to their livestock to not be on there, be in the territory where they're grazing and things of that sort. So how are you balancing that leading up to, the reintroduction project and trying to get people to sort of meet in the middle and understand it from both sides. Like you just said before, it's public land. These animals have been here, were here prior, albeit probably at that point, it was probably what, 40 or 50 years before the the wolves were seen in those territories. How do you try to wrap anyone's mind around that type of thinking as you were approaching that reintroductory project? Well, when, when wolves started naturally recolonizing Montana, right up near the Canadian border, um, they're protected under the Endangered Species Act as of 1974. Um, that document was the, the law of the land. So partly you got to sort of, again, Make it clear that, hey, look, I just work here. I'm just another guy like you. I breathe oxygen, put my pants on the same way. (laughs) But we have the Endangered Species Act. And, hey, guys, uh, if this is a wolf problem, it turns out to be one. I haven't got the power to do anything other than what that document says I can do. And neither do you, even on your private land. So, um, Early on, uh, most people sympathized, you know, because it's kind of like the federal government against all of us, and I'm just one of you. So I used to just explain it. Hey, look, here's what we can do. 
and here's what we can't do. And I'll do all I can for you. I'm here as an investigator. I'm like a cop. I'm collecting evidence. Uh, I'm going to pass this evidence on up to my bosses. But they get a, they're at a higher pay grade than me, and they get paid to make big decisions like this. And I can only do what they allow me to do. So that's how we handled it for many, many years. Um, and you, you, you could buy a lot of um, cooperation at that point because most reasonable people looked at me as, as a messenger, you know, just interpreting the law to them and, and doing what we could do. Um, and, that, and that's what we had to do. But even under the Endangered Species Act, there's if you start picking it apart and looking at little subsections within it, uh, even the first wolf pack that I worked on up in uh, on Blackfoot Indian Reservation in Montana, we didn't have any funding, we didn't have any experience, and we didn't have any equipment. I mean, we were just caught with our pants down with really limited uh, methods to even respond to the problem, but. It was a wolf pack, and they were killing sheep, and they were killing calves. But even within the Endangered Species Act, subsections within that allowed us eventually to capture these wolves. We put some in captivity in Minnesota, and we actually killed some. And when the federal government says, we can kill them under this section, and you will kill them under this section, uh, we're even able to do a lot of predator control, even with that document uh, saying that we really couldn't. And even with grizzly bears, too, it was an agency decision that if we got an old boar bear and, and uh, he was considered expendable, you know, the females are what we're really trying to protect, the female grizzlies, they're going to get more chances than a, an old boar bear. Uh, some grizzly bears were euthanized or, or killed during that time too. So um, again, it's you need a lot of people skills, but you, you also have to have a lot of understanding of how the system works, the policies, rules, and regulations, and you stay within those uh, sideboards. Uh, and then you do your very best to work with people and hear them and let them vent, let them get angry if they need to. Uh, but I think once, once you develop those skills and you're good at it, um, you can make it work as good as it can work. As a federal trapper, what happens to animals that are euthanized, um, you know, on assignment? Well, interestingly, uh, a lot of animals, like a grizzly bear, for instance, if it's caught in the summertime, it really doesn't have a nice pelt. In fact, grizzly bears in the summertime look pretty rough sometimes. Um, but the agencies, Fish and Wildlife Service at the time, and even under some state regulations too, we made sure that that animal was removed in its entirety, the carcass. And parts of that bear were definitely accountable, like the claws on the grizzly bear, uh, 
the gallbladder, you know, because there's a trade in the world for gallbladders out of bears. They're worth a big money. Uh, The skulls, if they're not damaged or injured, uh, the skulls are saved, cleaned with insects or boiled and used for educational purposes. So uh, in my career, I I never even mentioned as as a young man, I learned the skill of taxidermy too. I studied under one of the best guys in the state of Iowa. So I brought that to my job too. So I can't tell you how many thousands of animals I've skinned from coyotes to grizzly bears and everything in between size. Any animal that had a pelt that was decent winter-like or, you know, early spring, late fall, and the skulls were salvaged. And I did a lot of that myself uh, on my own time as part of my agency to uh, shave down the pelt, salt it, prep it, and uh, turn it over to the agency to be tanned. And then they gave them, again, to universities, uh, schools, or the agencies themselves, Fish and Wildlife Service or the state fish and game would put them in their lobby, you know, or, or part of a science display or traveling display. So it was always, it was something that I learned as a young man to not waste anything. While some people find it deplorable that you would skin an animal out and save its pelt and skull, uh, I I think it's absolutely essential that the animal is dead to utilize it to benefit more people, uh, younger people, let them see it, let them touch it, let them uh, look at the the amazing parts of nature, look at the teeth, look at all the components. So uh, that's what we did. That's what I did. Other biologists, I won't say everyone did that. Some, some just took them to a landfill and, and uh, shoved them over the bank and made sure that the bulldozer buried them. Ah, uh, that's disappointing. It's, it's, it's depended a lot on the individual. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you took all these skills. You're, you're basically prepping your entire, really your childhood into your teen years. I mean, really just everything you took along for the ride with yourself. And it, it made you this almost indispensable candidate for all of these jobs that you've had over the course of your career. Because every time you, you were getting promoted and you were doing the, it's amazing going through the book and seeing people literally calling up and saying, Carter, we ha- Carter would be good for this job. No, let's ask Carter. He'll do it. Or Carter will take this on. And you just seem to have all of these skills from when you were younger that you just took along the way and helped you in every facet. Did, you, did it ever dawn on you? Did you ever sit back at any point during your career and just sort of go back to, like you say, go back to Iowa and say, man, if I didn't do these things early on, I wouldn't be where I was? Or did it, did it never dawn on you as you were in the throes of it, in the throes of your work? Well, I never knew where my life would take me. Uh, I enjoyed my whole life. You know, every day, get out of bed and you're healthy and strong. I mean, you just go with where the day takes you. But uh, my occupation of of being a wildlife biologist with all of the uh, experiences that went with it, uh, I guess it was 
my destiny. That's the only way I can put it. So um, never once did I know where my life was heading for, nor did I know that, you know, working with cottontail rabbits, ducks, and pheasants would lead me to working with grizzly bears and, and wolves eventually. But the real, you know, I, I need to say it somewhere is that once I started handling more and more wolves and bears and, and these special magnificent animals and being able to, you know, put them down with uh, chemical immobilizing drugs and um, ear tag them, put collars on them, relocate them to safer locations, try and get them out of conflict. Uh, it really changed my consumptive nature. And, you know, instead of being the guy that, you know, was out with my rifle hunting my deer, the elk, uh, you know, killing something, saying it's mine and uh, killing something with antlers to hang on my wall. Uh, I lost that probably not too far into my career where I started appreciating life. You're in a life support system, suddenly you go from, you're all not only an investigator, you're, you're kind of like a medical technician. I'm checking pulse, temperature, respiration. I'm maintaining life. I've got to keep this animal alive. This this bear belongs to all of us, you know, and we want to do it safely and make sure this animal isn't injured or incapacitated. Um, so I, I I learned to appreciate stuff even more in a, in a grander way where I moved away from ever wanting to, you know, keep trapping, you know, to catch a coyote to you know, kill it and hang its hide on the wall or something. I, okay. to me, I'd rather handle a coyote and put a collar on his neck and let him go if that's the if that's the choice. And that's where I am. I am today. Uh, you know, I'd much rather any shooting I do now is mostly with a camera, and seldom do I fire a bullet uh, toward an animal in a lethal manner, other than. My wife and I like to eat an elk, and so we put one of them in the freezer every couple of years. Otherwise, I don't kill anything anymore. I just, uh, I'm over that. It's, ama- it's amazing to me that transformation um, and how that, how that goes through your life. I want you to really touch on when you were up in Canada and you, were, you elicited the help of these Canadian trappers to get the wolves who are going to eventually be reintroduced into Yellowstone and Idaho. Because this is, this again was one of the many fascinating points of the book, but this to me was really the apex of, it seemed like your your entire career was building to this point, both personally, professionally. Just describe to people how that process sort of went down and maybe they didn't, they, they don't know that these wolves were trapped by individuals up in Canada who knew what they were doing and how that all came about. Yeah, that was probably one of the wildest adventures in my lifetime was being part of the wolf recovery team. Uh, there was an environmental impact statement written in 1994 and, and in 1995 and 1996, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, carried out this gray wolf reintroduction into uh, central Idaho 
Frank Church Wilderness, and then Yellowstone National Park. So I was working for Wildlife Services. It was a predator control agency under the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service borrowed me. You know, we need Carter on our team to go up and because this is really what Carter does. So agriculture loaned me to the interior and I, and I went up there thinking I was just going to help out, do whatever I could to, you know, assemble a kennel or, you know, whatever you want me to do. And so when I got up there, it was several weeks into the wolf reintroduction plan uh, when it was exercised and, and uh, people were up there, you know, and I thought, wow, I probably missed out on most of it. When I got up there, nothing had happened. There was no breakdown of communications. Uh, nobody was talking. Uh, and I had a list of names. So I went to some doors, you know, met a couple of trappers up there, and they were mad as hell, to put it mildly. Uh, nobody was talking. They felt like they had been shanghaied by the U.S. government. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service had, was offering them $2,000 for every live wolf they produced from their trap lines. Uh, and these wolves were being caught in neck snares. They weren't foothold traps. And so when I showed up, everybody was just looking to kill somebody over the misunderstandings and the lie and deception that they felt was being perpetrated on them. So I spent the better part of my first day in Canada uh, near Hinton, Alberta, in an argument, uh, name calling, threats, you know, at the kitchen table, pack your butt, get out of, get out of Canada, leave here. You're, you're a bunch of liars. And it's like, I, I kept telling them, I said, no, 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 look, this is what I'm up here to do. I'm supposed to help you guys help me. <laughs> and so then eventually it got into have a beer, have supper. Some of the guys left, some of them stayed and, uh, so then that night, they tried to shock me, you know, by walking in the door with two fresh, dead black wolves, beautiful, yeah. gorgeous uh, wolves with bullets in them. Wow. And like, here's what we do to wolves in Canada. And it's like, that's kind of stupid. <laughs> Why are you killing them? I could give you, well, you're a liar. And I said, well, I'm not. So anyway, this argument turned into... I'll bet you don't even know how to skin a wolf. And I said, I know how to skin a wolf. I've skinned a lot of wolves. I skin a lot of everything. Bet you don't even have a knife. So I reached my pocket. I said, I have a knife. So they challenged me to well, let's have this spontaneous wolf skinning contest in this guy's living room. Oh my God. <laughs> and uh, I'll try not to belabor it, but I took him on. I said, You want to skin a wolf? I can skin a wolf. So we, I, I guess we bonded, skinning in two wolves in this guy's living room, blood all over us, and they broke out the choked cherry wine, and, and we got schnockered on red lightning, you might call it. I uh, ended up skinning two wolves, and by that night, I couldn't leave, of course. I slept on the sofa in my blood-soaked underwear, and the next morning, this Trapper goes, so you're up here, you want live wolves? I said, yeah, that's why I'm here. He says, you want live wolves? I'll get you live wolves. And that afternoon, we went out and had 
two wolves in snares that would have been shot otherwise due to the misunderstanding. So I immobilized them. We brought them back to Hinton, put them in a bear culvert trap, and I called the interior people back in the United States, and I said, hey, I got two live wolves, but what do I do with them? I, I don't have any equipment. I don't have kennels. So on the fast track, the Fish and Wildlife Service said, holy schmoly, we Carter needs help. So within a week, uh, trucks were rolling, kennels were brought up. Uh, I put radio collars on these two wolves uh, and we released them because, I mean, we had nothing. We didn't know what to do with them otherwise. But I did get a radio collar on their neck, put them back out with their pack. Another trapper called me the next day. He had a wolf alive. And the wheels started turning from that first day up there. And uh, backup showed up. I had more biologists rolled in. The trappers said, hey, look, this guy's serious. He's, he's going to pay us. And uh, here we are, you know, 25 years later, we've got 2,000 wolves living in Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana <laughs> as a result of those first pioneering moments up in uh, Alberta. Wow. So what was the perspective up there in, in Canada that, you know, public acceptance of, of hunting wolves? I mean, uh, I, I ask myself this question all the time, how there seems to be two separate objective realities, one where predators need to be managed and another where predators manage their own numbers. Um, you know, what's your sense of that? Do, do, do predators seem in your experience to manage themselves to a meaningful degree um, to not need to be managed lethally in the name of conservation, for example? Well, first of all, if you believe me as a wolf expert, mm -hmm. that's questionable nowadays. There's people more and more that don't respect me and don't accept what I say, but uh, wolves are self-regulating, you know, where, where there's established viable wolf populations. Um, this is where I get to share some of my information that I give at workshops. Please. Most commonly, prey control predators. Predators don't control prey. So there's been this mm. mythology and this anecdotal BS out West that they brought wolves here and they ate all the elk, they're eating all the deer, they're eating all the moose, and they're going to kill everything and the hunters won't have anything to hunt. Right. As I'm sitting here talking to you today, Idaho has more elk now, 25 years later in the state, than they had 25 years ago. Montana has more elk, Wyoming has more elk. Montana's population of elk probably increased 40 to 60,000 elk since 25 years ago when wolves uh, recolonized and were reintroduced into Yellowstone. So wolves have not controlled the prey and the populations are living very well together and hunters are still harvesting near record elk harvests each year. Wow. So, um, so getting back to uh, speaking as a hunter and trapper, there is a culture in the United States that wants to continue to justify that hunting is good, hunting is essential, hunting is needed, as is trapping and snaring. And 
folks, that's all legal. So, I mean, it, even some of the states are trying to write it into their state constitutions that you'll never take right. our guns, you'll never take our traps, you'll never take our snares, and we will always kill whatever we want to kill in good numbers. Um, right, so they're trying to write it in as as a right via yeah, the Constitution. A yeah. right and a culture and a tradition of hunting, trapping in this country that people fear is going to be threatened if for some reason you admit that, no, you don't have to shoot them. You don't have to trap them and snare them. I see. And my answer is you don't have to, but it's legal. It's allowed. It's something we've been doing. In fact, by the 1930s, the first go around, we exterminated wolves, got rid of all of them, but that was with poison and, and some really nasty methodologies. So uh, most currently, as we speak today, I mean, Wisconsin, yeah, wolves were just delisted here in the last uh, couple of months under the Trump administration. And so starting next week, Wisconsin's talking about killing 200 wolves. They're going to sell 4,000 tags and kill 200 wolves. Wow. But if you look at Wisconsin for the last, let's just say the last decade, these wolves have killed a few sheep and a few cattle, nothing much, a few, uh, but, and even more importantly, they got over 1.3 million white-tailed deer in the state of Wisconsin. Wolves been eating deer for decades in Wisconsin, and there's still millions of deer in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. Do wolves need to be killed for what they're doing? Not on that scale. And there's always been wolf control, you know, control for eating, mm -hmm. you know, a pack of wolves kills a sheep or something or a, or a bunch of sheep. The government has always, through the agency I worked for, Wildlife Services, removed problem wolves. So, I mean, this, this is really uh, politicians defending and protecting rural communities and, and people <laughs> who hunt and trap and looking out for their uh, rights, I guess you say. So um, that's the world we live in. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the elk numbers in, in some of those states where wolves have been reintroduced that they're they're they seem to be doing well they're going up um but then in a state like colorado where there aren't any wolves the elk population seems to be hurting now i mean at least you know i've heard from some local biologists that the the calving rate is declining and and the the herd seems to be in some kind of trouble and they have and they don't really know why um so i find it interesting that a state without any uh you know super predators is having problems with their elk herd and certain states where elves, uh, uh, wolves have been reintroduced seem, seem to have an elk herd that's doing fine. Well, let me comment on Colorado. I, I live in Idaho, so I'm an outsider. But uh, <laughs> first of all, let me say, in the state of Colorado, if you're looking at deer, moose, and elk combined, there is an estimated 700,000 deer, elk, and moose in the state of Colorado. If you take the elk herd in Colorado, near around uh, 
upper 260, 70,000 or plus or minus, they have nearly more elk, as many elk in the state of Colorado as Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming combined. Jeez. So uh, is there a problem with game numbers? Um, I guess there is. But is it a serious case that's, you know, infringing on hunters' success? Not really. Colorado is one of the high success rate states. Um, I see wolves aren't going to be a factor whatsoever. And, and I'm not promoting wolf reintroduction in Colorado one way or the other. I mean, if they get there naturally or they decide to reintroduce them, that's their prerogative. And I'm, I'm not getting into the debate. But if wolves get there one way or the other and you get a viable, sustainable population of wolves, if something happens to the deer and elk, it could be chronic wasting disease that could be the factor in the end of which wolves could be a benefit mm. in the state of Colorado. But wolves on their own, in their own numbers in the state of Colorado, it is my professional opinion, are going to have virtually no impact on the big game population there. It's probably going to be a human factor that ultimately <laughs> affects uh, elk herds in the state by just the sheer number of visitors on the public lands that's, you know, um, influencing where wolf or where uh, elk can <laughs> distribute themselves, how safe their calving grounds are and, and how much they're affected by you know, mountain bikes and snowmobiles and ATVs and cross-country skiers and, and all that comes with humanity. It's very interesting that they, they turned it, they turned the voting onto the public here. And I think that's, that's a big part of the, the resistance. But um, so, you know, wolves are going to be reintroduced in Colorado. They've been reintroduced in these other Western states. And I think the federal government is still compensating ranchers for lost cattle um in your experience is this a system that works is it is it a long-term solution to the resistance to wolves being back on the landscape well first of all uh, a lot of ranchers i shouldn't say a lot there's a number of ranchers who do not accept compensation they they feel that it's uh, a carrot that we're dangling out there you know hey if you take our money then we're buying you, you know, you're taking the bait and you're going to find wolves acceptable in your environment. So uh, compensation really don't buy you much. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other problem is that a, a lot of rural folks will say, well, you know, yes, you're paying me for the fair market value of my dead animal that I would have gotten if he went on the hoof into a truck and went to the slaughterhouse. But there's all these other issues now. Well, you're, you know, having wolves around or you're upsetting my cows. Um, their fertility rates have dropped. Uh, their body weight has been diminished uh, because the wolves are chasing them around. Uh, the bulls aren't breeding the cows because the wolves have chased them apart. And so there's, when you get to this slippery slope of compensation, what do you pay for and what are you buying? And is there ever enough money to pay for all of the 
assumptions people make that this is costing me dollars. So um, people go down there. I mean, it sounds the fairest, you know, that uh, urban taxpayers are paying their taxes and, and part of those taxes are going into a fund to pay rural folks for the losses they incur from wolves. But I remind people again, you know, I have to always be the devil's advocate in all this is uh, there's a National Agricultural Statistical Reporting Service figures that show predation loss by all predators is about 5% of livestock death in the United States. 95% of livestock die from snowstorms, birthing problems, respiratory problems, accidents, sickness, um, <coughs> lightning sickness. strikes, poison weeds, the list goes on and on. And so going back in my career, most livestock the deaths that I examined were not predators because uh -huh. other things happen to livestock much more often than what a predator uh, inflicts. So again, these are figures I put them out there because I just want the public to be aware that it's, it's, you know, predators are a very <laughs> tiny aspect of the problem, and they should be a tiny aspect of our concern. But large predators have become the scapegoat and blame for a lot of people's problems, and they really aren't problems. So back when you were doing that federal work, uh, was CWD even a, a thought in people's minds? I've only become aware of chronic wasting disease probably in the last decade is, you know, where it's really been gaining attention because it is spreading in, in uh, I don't know, uh, 15, 20 states in the U.S. have severe chronic wasting disease. Colorado is one of those states. I mean, that's kind of where it all started uh, in the state of Colorado. Mm. And, um, but there's, you, you talk in any Western state here, you know, talk about letting wolves live because they might eat some of the potentially sick deer and elk and moose, of which you know, we haven't had chronic wasting disease identified in Idaho yet, but it's been peripheral to us and it's right. really closing in around Yellowstone. But it would make more sense to me to stop killing wolves and let them eat deer and elk because they're certainly not diminishing their numbers and they could be a barrier to a disease like chronic wasting disease, but nobody wants to hear it. it it's just not <laughs> even, let's not even talk about it. We want to kill X number of wolves every year for the rest of our lives because, you know, they don't belong here or they're, you said there would only be this many and now there's that many. So um, it's politics. Wolf killing has become totally political. And it's, in my opinion, anyway, it's not a biological issue as much now as a socio-political problem. Right. And in terms of CWD, um, are we talking about wolves uh targeting animals with CWD? Like, is it noticeable that quick? The only argument I've heard that I thought was interesting, for some animals, it doesn't show up for 
for several years. They're not exhibiting symptoms. So are we talking about wolves as a byproduct of, of more wolves uh, thinning the herd that just as a byproduct will lessen the effects of CWD? Or is there any evidence to suggest in the states where CWD already exists and wolves are already on the landscape that they that the symptoms are outwardly noticeable enough for them to be targeting those animals? Well, you got to understand, I mean, uh, some of the basic reading in, in almost any literature, any book written by any author that knows what they're talking about, Dr. David Meach and the list goes on, is that um, predators kill the sick, the weak, the young, the inexperienced, you know, and then the unlucky, you know, it was opportunistically, but wolves, <laughs> and there's some really excellent wildlife films that you can see on the internet now and public television and that these wolves have a, uh, this ability to look at an animal and know that it's vulnerable. Right. It's, it's uncanny, <laughs> but they know. So yes, I think a, a deer or an elk or moose that's hesitant, slow on the uptake, a uh, little bit non-responsive, Right. A human would never notice it. Yeah, they'll wolf do it. does. And a wolf, I mean, they'll they'll pick that animal out. And time and again, uh, studies in Yellowstone, when uh, they do winter studies there, Dr. Doug Smith, and they go out and they look at these kills that wolves take down, the elk. And it's uncanny again how many of them have a fracture. Uh, they, they're incapacitated in some small way, sometimes in a major way. Same with bison. You know, they during breeding season, the bulls fight and gory one another. And the wolves sometimes are just content to, you know, let the buffalo tip over on his own because he's been stuck in the gut by a horn or something. But absolutely, these predators can see this. And to me, that's part of the holding off. You don't want chronic wasting disease to be an outbreak. If it is, man, we're, uh, and sportsmen should be more supportive of this than anyone. As they're already talking about, if, if these things have uh, chronic wasting disease, they're telling people don't eat them. Yeah. So how long are you going to sell deer and elk tags in, in a state that's full of chronic wasting disease? Or do you keep, testing the ones that people kill and say, here, we'll give you another tag. Your, your animal is diseased. How long before that really impacts the hunting industry? So the wolves could be a benefit. It just means that sometimes somebody's going to have to say, oh, yeah, I guess I'm willing to back off on killing wolves. But by God, it's my right and my, you know, I'm entitled to kill wolves and we can't let them get too thick. Um, I don't buy into any of that. And I've been a sportsman my whole life and bought my share of hunting tags and, and all that. But uh, it's like the state of Wyoming now you know, with all the feed grounds. Idaho has them too. You keep congregating these large numbers, six, seven, eight thousand elk into a few hundred acres or a thousand acres in the winter. And you bring them together, that is a disease situation just waiting to happen and chronic wasting disease has been identified in and around Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, I wish people would smarten up and if a pack of wolves has to be tolerated and could kill a few more elk that might be sick, uh, that's a 
really good investment and it's free. The predators are out there just waiting to do their job. Do you see a way forward that these sides can start to come together? Have you seen in your experience, obviously throughout your career, you've seen that these factions have come together at certain points and worked together for the reintroduction project, for letting wolves cohabitate. Is there any indication that you have gathered or seen both in your work and since you've been retired where, as Stephen was mentioning, maybe there's a little bit of a break and people are a little bit more, uh, I guess, lenient of letting nature really take its course and us taking a step back and people sort of working with that? Well, being candid and honest here and like speaking, right, especially like today, you know, uh, 2021, I see it getting more polarized, especially right here where I live in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. Uh, Politicians, uh, the state legislatures have got a burr under their saddle to kill predators especially you're talking about wolves right now. They're extending the seasons. They're opening them earlier in the fall, extending them later into the spring, opening up wolf killing year round on private lands. Wyoming has made them a predator on 80 some percent of the state of Wyoming. You can kill a wolf year round. They're just vermin. Montana and Idaho, more and more leniency. They, they manage them as big game animals, yet they're treating them like vermin. Uh, in Idaho, if, if you buy all the tags, and you can legally kill upward of 30 wolves per person in the state of Idaho with no quotas. Jeez. There's a group, a private group, that calls themselves a Foundation for Wildlife Management, which couldn't be further from the truth. There's no wildlife management involved. It's a bunch of yahoos uh, raising money from groups like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, who you know should be spending their money on habitat, not worrying about wolves. Sure. But nonetheless, we have a bounty system. They will call it an incentive payment but I call it a bounty. They're paying from 500 to 1,000 bucks per wolf to kill them in the state of Idaho right now. And they're trying to get this into the legislature in Montana. Uh, Montana currently has two bills. I think they're being heard today to uh, increase opportunity to trap wolves longer season, and they're going to open it up to wolf snaring. And again, as a professional trapper for 40 years of my 73-year life, these snares are bad news. Certainly, the snares are going to kill a few more wolves. Not a lot more, but a few more. But one public records request that came in here in in Idaho just a couple, three years back showed 46% of the animals caught in in snares especially, and, and traps too, is non-target. They're catching eagles, they're catching bears, they're catching mountain lions, uh, catching people's domestic dogs and pets. So right now, I've never seen it crazier at wanting to kill wolves. And it's my candid opinion that a lot of this is directed 
back at the federal government for reintroducing wolves in the first place. I've always felt that as long as I worked as a federal employee. There's a tremendous resentment. And if you go back through the records and the history, back to the late 80s, early 90s, when the environmental impact statement was being written to reintroduce wolves, uh, the states were tremendously resentful toward that whole idea. And congressmen tried to stop it. They uh, did everything in their power to cut budgets. Uh, state of Idaho and the biologists from the state wanted to help with the federal reintroduction. The legislator, legislature wrote a bill forbidding them. To, they couldn't be involved in any aspect of it. That's why the Nez Perce tribe became the principal uh, management organization or entity in the state of Idaho, all during uh, wolf recovery from 95 and 96 up until they were delisted in Idaho. It was the Nez Perce tribe that was managing them because the state legislature did everything they could to obstruct the state from being a part and party to it. So again, I'm back to saying killing wolves is a political decision. It's not a biological decision in this biologist's opinion. Yeah, bring me to a question that I wanted to ask you. Um, while I was reading the first chapter of your book, you had a quote in there. It's, um, in a way, wolves changed me far more than I changed them. It was a feeling that I hoped others would come to understand in time and even share. Um, what did you mean by that? And how are we doing on the second part? Well, I think I expressed it then and I'm expressing it now right as we're talking about all this that they they have changed me because i i've had the unique privilege and opportunity to work with wolves since the mid-1980s so i'm uh, going on 40 years of, of of being aware of wolves and having hands-on experience and being involved in all aspects of, of wolf management i have become more and more sympathetic toward them that wolves are getting a bum rap and that uh, the anecdotal stories, the mythology, the fairy tales, uh, I think it's the anecdotal stories more than anything is, you know, people, oh, there's people run up trees by wolves. Uh, this happened, that happened, all these horrible experiences. I was elk hunting and I, my, my party, we were surrounded. We had to build a campfire. The horses were tied to the trees. The wolves were... I mean, you've been watching too many movies, folks, because in my 30 years of camping out, living in a tent, trapping wolves, collaring wolves, investigating wolves, hiking around in the woods where wolves have killed livestock, I have never had a lukewarm, bad experience ever. <laughs> wolves are shy. They try to avoid you. Um they're just not a dangerous animal. Yes, they have big teeth. Yes, they could bite you. Yes, they could kill you, but they don't. And yet, you know, since the 1930s when wolves were gone and, and it was about uh, 60 years before they came back into this country, black bears, mountain lions, and wolves, or black bears, mountain lions, and grizzly bears have always been here. And read the paper, read the statistics. Those three carnivores kill people annually, not wolves. 
bears, lions, they do get people from here to Tennessee. I mean, black bears maul people annually and mountain lions stalk people. And I'm not trying to paint a bad picture for them. I'm just saying they're a riskier animal and they've always been here. Where the wolves are newcomers and in the 21st century, and since we did the wolf reintroduction in 95 and 96 down here in the lower 48, they haven't killed anybody. That's why I've changed because I've lived it. I've experienced it. I let the facts lead me to where I am today as far as how I feel about wolves. And I just, like I've said time and time again, wolves to me are no big issue and they're not a problem. We have a people problem, but we don't have a wolf problem. Man, I want to piggyback off Stephen then, Carter, because this is this plays perfectly into this. When you hear the word wolf, what comes to your mind? Well, right now, from entertainment value, uh, since I do mostly camera shooting now, I have trail cameras out. I put them out in the spring and summer here, and I monitor wolf packs. I put them out. I know how wolves... I set my cameras like I would set my traps, except I don't have to catch the wolf in a trap. I'm, I put my cameras where I know they're going to be, and I count them, and I look at them, and I get video of them. They're a magnificent animal. They're the progenitor of the domestic dog. They're just a big old canine. Uh, beautiful animals. Uh, you look at each one, they've got their own individual markings, peculiarities, behaviors. So when I see a wolf, it's, it's just a, a magnificent experience. I can't get enough pictures of them. And uh, better yet, if I can get in a position in the morning where I can sit and watch one through the spotting scope uh, and just watch them trot through the country, move through the uh, fields and maybe a pair of coyotes barking at them and harassing them. Uh, I just see a, a <laughs> fabulous outdoor experience. That's what I see. <laughs> That's usually our last question, but you, uh, I don't know. I feel like we could do three podcasts with you and you, you have absolutely potent messages across the board that you want to share. That's like I said, that's usually our last question, but I will ask, is there anything else that you want people to know or that you want to share any other point that you really want to drive home? Uh, totally welcome. I just wish people would be more involved with the welfare of the wild species and our natural resources in this country. Um, you take so much for granted as people. You you go to the public lands all the time to cross-country ski, to put up your tents, to go fishing and to go hunting and camping. and there's all that wildlife that lives on those public lands and people need to wake up and look out for those critters. I mean, we always think of everything in consumptive measure, you know, when is deer season open and I want to go shoot a deer and that's fine and dandy. I mean, there's a lot of deer and elk out there that are good, healthy meat, but um, get involved, speak up, listen to what these legislatures are doing and get involved. And if there's things you don't like, um, 
speak up, speak out, make calls, write letters, but things aren't going to change if you just sit there and say, oh, that's horrible, and, and then forget about it. That's, that's my message is people get involved. These are your natural resources. Piggybacking off that, Carter, is there any place that you know, I'm sure you do, any information you can give to people who are listening now where they can contact about these issues, particularly maybe about these snaring, uh, about these extended hunting seasons, anything that any places you can point people to uh, that you know offhand where people can get involved? Well, all of this now is at the state level. Wolves are delisted. The federal government is pretty much washed their hands of wolf recovery, with the exception of the Mexican gray wolf down in Arizona and New Mexico. So I guess the only people that are going to hear you and have to hear you is the governors of the states, their legislatures, their fish and game commissions, and the wildlife management agencies in those states. They're the people that you need to make accountable and ask questions and have them defend what they're doing and why they're doing it. My wife has a good saying, if I can remember it here real quick. quick. <laughs> Comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. And uh, that is a great way to look at things in life. Because if you just don't speak up and you don't say anything, there's a lot of people that are mighty comfortable. And, and uh, these politicians hear from the people they want to hear from. It's time politicians hear from the people they don't want to hear from. Carter, this has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, once again, for those of you um, who want to check out any of the things that Carter has done, I believe your website is your name, carterneemeyer.com, correct? They can go there and check out the books and, and your bio and things of that sort. Yeah, I was going to say too, since then, uh, Wolfer is also an audio book that you can purchase almost anywhere. We'd, and even we just did the third edition upgrade of Wolfer. And then the other book is Wolfland, and we're working on making that an audio book. Are you reading the audio book? You know, I, it takes a lot of skill and talent to be an audio reader. And I did not read my own book because it, it would probably be an eternity for me to get the first sentence to the last we had a great reader that helped us, but uh, it takes a studio. It takes, you guys are more technical than me about that, but it, it takes a tremendous amount of, of technical resources to, to put a book like that together. And it would have never happened if I took on that task. So uh, a guy named Joe Golden read the book for us and uh, I really like the way he did it. So uh well, thanks, Joe. They're driving, riding, flying, and need something to listen to. Uh, I think you'll thoroughly enjoy it. And Amazing. I'm working on a third book idea. It's it's a struggle, but uh, coming along. Can't wait. Yeah, I can't wait for it. I, I can't listen, everyone. I, I cannot recommend Wolfer, a memoir, enough. I, I just finished it last night. Again, it, it really uh, hit me... Uh, in a way that a book hasn't hit me in a long time. So, uh, and also Wolfland is out there. Both were published by Bottlefly, Bottlefly Press. Carter Niemeyer, 
absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. You're welcome back anytime. Please keep us posted on the third book. And if there's any other legislation and issues that you would want to bring to the table, Stephen and I are absolutely open to listening to you um, and having you back on again. Can't thank you enough, sir. Well, thank you very much for letting me express my uh, feelings and opinions here. And uh, anytime, I, I would look forward to visiting with you folks anytime. We'll definitely set it up for sure. Uh, howls to all of you out there. And Stephen and I will talk to you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information.